Welcome to the Books We Loved, a podcast through the Troy Public Library. Today, Amanda and I will be talking about the books that have impacted us the most as readers and as people over our life. This was like choosing your favorite child. Yeah. This was a very hard assignment. Have you ever heard of the phrase biographia literaria? It's a type of work that tells a person's story through books. Mm. So that's what this episode should be called. Yeah, so we're going to talk about the books that we have truly loved that have influenced us. Amanda, you came up with this idea. Was there anything in particular that you wanted to say about it? No. Let's just jump right in. (laughs) Let's just jump right in. I don't even know how the idea came to me, quite honestly. Uh, Well, I said before we started recording, at first I was like, stumped because I was like, I've already talked about so many of my faves, Mm -hmm. the Julia of the Wolves of it all, the Bridge to Terabithia, the Leaves of Grass, the Letters to a Young Poet. I have really gone over a lot of my, you know, core favorites. So I was like, maybe I already talked about them all. Nope. When I sat down and I started writing, I was pretty surprised by the things that surfaced. This was a really, really hard to narrow down because I agree. I feel like we've mentioned a lot of books that we really love already. So it was hard to say, you know, what has been the most, I don't, what has been the core to my reading slash human development. This was a really hard assignment. Yeah. And it is so cool to think about these books as really helping shape me as a human being. Like mm-hmm. reading is so important, it says really the is. public librarian. Well, research actually does back you up, so. So there we go. So take that. I want you to go first today. It's my holiday present to you. Okay, so the very first book that I thought of, so I don't know if you've had this, Manda, where when you're an adolescent, you have like your favorite book, and it is Uh, the book. Little House on the Prairie. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's like the book that in some way is like your quote-unquote brand. Like we Mm -hmm. didn't have that because we were – adolescence pre-social media mm-hmm. but I definitely had just like an in-person thing like if someone were to ask me what my favorite book was and this was probably like college age for me my favorite mm-hmm. book was 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez wow. with a runner-up as Love in the Time of Cholera so I loved everything Gabriel Garcia Marquez wrote essentially in wow. college He was my first big introduction to magical realism, which was huge Mm -hmm. for me. You never really knew if something was real or Mm -hmm. a character's hallucination or... Imagination. Imagination or if it was metaphor. So I should probably say what magical realism is. It's ostensibly a realistic story. So people go about the world that we know, this sort of regular world, And then something magical happens in it. So, like, everything else is real but ghosts. Like, realistic fiction, but one random thing Mm happens. The main character can talk to their dead best friend or something. There's, like, some sort of element of magic Mm -hmm. rounded in a realistic story. Mm -hmm. And so I really loved that. I loved the, yeah, that sort of murkiness of it. And I also, the thing that I loved most about Gabriel Garcia Marquez was that he sort of forces you to sit in the unknown. So he'll say something that you think is crazy Mm -hmm. and that doesn't make sense to you at all at first. And you just have to sort of sit with that uncertainty until maybe a couple paragraphs later where he clarifies exactly what Mm -hmm. that first thing means. 
So a good example of this is the very first page of Love in the Time of Cholera, which I'm just going to read the first paragraph. It's just a few sentences. Uh, It was inevitable. The scent of bitter almonds always reminded him of the fate of unrequited love, which doesn't make any sense to me at first. Like, why would bitter almonds remind someone of the scent or of the fate of unrequited love? Then he goes on, Dr. Huevano Urbino noticed it as soon as he entered the still darkened house where he had hurried on an urgent call to attend a case that for him had lost all urgency many years before. The Antillian refugee, Jeremiah de Saint-Amour, disabled war veteran, photographer of children, and his most sympathetic opponent in chess had escaped the torments of memory with the aromatic fumes of gold cyanide. So you're like, why is he talking about bitter almonds? Why Mm -hmm. is he talking about unrequited love? Then you keep reading and you have to kind of just trust the author for a little while. Mm -hmm. And then he reveals that that is also the smell of cyanide. So this is a suicide case from the very beginning. And that's about to say bitter almonds is, um, I think, also arsenic. I think so, too. Yeah. Yeah, It's like the smell of poison. And I didn't know that when I first read it. I only know this because of all the crime. All the shows I watch. This has come up on several episodes yeah. <laughs> of uh, Forensic Fire. <laughs> <laughs> this comes up in my life more than most people's. Yeah, yeah, you're the prepared. Show, the shows I watch. If I smell it, I'll like knock that cup out of someone's hand and be like, "You're not giving me that poison." Isn't that the dream to save someone from being poisoned by knocking a cup out of their hand? I mean, that's a very specific dream, but maybe just saving people in general. Yes, oh, absolutely. Know. And then being able to be like afterward, like. You're welcome. You're welcome. Also, I didn't do it for the glory. It's not about that. But I then, did it for anyone would have done it. And then you have to be all humble about no, it. No, I would be like. You wouldn't? I would be like, where's my ticker tape parade? <laughs> I saved your life. <laughs> you'd be signing people's, you'd be signing autographs. You'd be posing for the I front I would be going up to people that didn't news. even know who I was or what I'd done. And I would just start signing their <laughs> arms with a Sharpie and be like, you're welcome, everyone. You're welcome. You're welcome. You know why. <laughs> I'm just a person of the people taking care of the people. You're welcome. (laughs) It's the dream. That's funny. So that's 100 Years of Solitude slash Love in the Time of Cholera. 100 Years of Solitude is a huge book. It's a family story. It goes through generations and generations Mm -hmm. and generations. And it was one of the first books where I finished and I felt that like, whoa, Whoa. feeling in the last page. You know, that like rush. Mm -hmm. Um, So if those, those books can be kind of intimidating. I mean, I read them in college when I was reading all of the time. Now I don't I don't know. It's one of those ones where I don't know if I would read it again. But I'm going to read tons and tons of uh, magical realism. Big Fish was a big one for me. Snow Child. Anything by Isabel Allende. Um, like Water for Chocolate. Anything like that that has that magical realism. Um, it's part of that lineage that started in sort of Central and South America. I love that, that sort mm-hmm. of branch of writing so that was a big one for me what's your first one you know I don't know if they still ask this question but when when I first became a librarian I went to interviews where one of the questions that came up I feel like in every interview was so why did you become a librarian and it's really hard to answer that question in a short amount of time in an interview and be concise because I feel like everybody's story is maybe longer um, and maybe I feel like everyone's stories are kind of like that ball of yarn where you have to tug on it and starts to un unroll and you know you get to that little weird nubbin at the center 
this is my weird nubbin at the center. That just sounds weird. You can cut all of that. <laughs> no, please. I liked it. Um, so when I was a kid, we lived in Detroit and um, we happened to be in a Catholic school um, called St. Matthew's that is no longer there. And I had half days of kindergarten and my mom was a stay at home mom. So she would walk the four of us kids to school. She would come back halfway through the day and get me. And we would um, walk home. And on our way home, my mom would always let us stop. She and I would always stop at the uh, public library. And I believe if I'm correct, I think it was a Mark Twain branch. And I don't even know if that's still open or not. I know a lot of branches had to close in in the Detroit library system. And um, we went and I would sit and look at the picture books. I have a very clear memory of just sitting there and looking at books when I was a kid, we still had cassette players, and I had this little Fisher-Price cassette player, and I thought it was super cool. They used to have the bags, the hanging bags, with the book oh, totally. and the tape. Yeah, oh, those are the best. Which, of course, now we have, like, wonder books, right, yeah. where the little player's already in the book. So I would go in literally every couple days and, and check out, and every couple days return the same book and listen to it over and over again every uh-huh, day. It was my sure. jam. And I don't know what drew me to it. I think it was like the, how lyrical the words are, but it was the real mother goose. And I don't oh. even know what, what um, version it was. I happened to just bring in my copy from home. This is not the one I grew up with. I just got this at a garage sale. But I love mother goose. We know now that nursery rhymes are super helpful and super important to children to hear because it... Um, stimulates the part of your brain it helps with your development it has all these great things that throw in towards your early literacy nursery rhymes are fantastic we have a program called rhyme time with miss yj and she does nursery rhymes and it's great it's great for kids to hear the the meter the lyricism and the words and it's also great for them hearing um, the beat and starting to learn and develop those words and the idea of what those words mean Mm -hmm. and it helps them understand these little tiny short stories that are nursery rhymes and so I loved it and I got my first library card at the in the Detroit library system and I still have it nice and I always think of my mom when I see a mother goose book and which is funny because of course my copy has mother goose on the cover riding her goose with a little kid behind her um so I just feel like if any book turned me into a librarian, it was probably Mother Goose because of my just early love of having that special time that was dedicated for me to go to the library with my mom. We didn't have a lot of money, mm-hmm. so this was like a huge treat for me to be able to go, and my mom would let me check out a couple of books. Heck yeah, that's the best. So I think that to me was like, this is the foundation. This is the cornerstone of me as a human being right here in a book. So that's where I believe. And I don't know, I was thinking about it last night. I don't know that I have a favorite, but I always like the idea of, um, God, so many of them. This so is many. I can't even pick a favorite. I'm going through trying to look at these. I don't even know what my favorite would be. Can I take a look at that? Absolutely. This is a the artwork is beautiful. Illustrated copy. <laughs> so my mother goose memory is, Oh, this is beautiful. Isn't that pretty? I think I got that at a garage sale or a library. It could be from a library book sale. I have so many books at home with the library name stamped in them from all the libraries I've worked at. And then the books were weeded. And then I bought them at the Friends book sale. So I 
played Mixed Up Mother Goose. Did you ever play that? It was a video game. Mm-mm. That was like the best video game. And I had it when I was pretty young on this like really old computer that we had at our house. It probably wasn't old. It was probably new, but it, it was mm-hmm. In slow. your mind, yeah. Because, because it was in like the 90s or this whatever. This was pre-dial-up. Yeah. <laughs> it was a really Beep, slow burp, computer. Burp. Um, but it, <laughs> it there was a video game where you... Um, land as a little child i'm going to show you sometime they have like youtube videos for nostalgia Mm -hmm. purposes but um you land in this like mother goose universe but all the fairy tales are mixed up so like humpty dumpty is um over by the little miss muffet so you have to Mm -hmm. like get humpty dumpty back and it had all these little illustrations and they were so kooky and you had to go fix them all and i loved it we're gonna find a vintage version of that and figure out how to play it it's so fun you're gonna love it and then the other thing that brought up for me amanda was thinking of how important audiobooks were for Mm -hmm. me as a kid i listened to absolutely normal chaos by sharon creech so many times that it was like a joke in my family. I would just walk around with my cassette, portable mm-hmm. cassette player, and just listen to it over mm-hmm. and over and over. And it was so comforting to be told a story like that. And it was such it goes a back to like our roots as humans, right? Yeah. Like if you go back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years to humans before writing, everybody. Every community had like the storyteller. Yeah. And that's why I think um, The Giver is such a cool book because she took that idea right. of someone. They're not just the story storyteller. They're the story keeper and the memory keeper, which I think is fascinating. But it always kind of chaps my fingernails when people say that audiobooks are not real books. Because oh, it's so important. So wrong. It goes back to the base of how we were educated before writing before the majority of people could read. And so I think audiobooks are super important. And I don't think it's I don't think it's a surprise that I used to listen to this on a cassette tape audiobook as a kid and that I love um audiobooks as an adult and I digest them like candy for some people yeah. and um I can't ever, ever, ever recommend audiobooks on Libby enough. If you haven't tried the Libby app, oh my gosh, you're missing out, friends. Okay, I will pass it back to you. I just wanted to say really quickly, so the real Mother Goose, obviously Mother Goose was not, you know, one particular author. It's just a collection of stories from hundreds of years. But this edition with the beautiful pictures, if you ever wanted to look at it, um, and we don't own it, you could order it through with your library card through Mel. Um, It's the version with the pictures by Blanche Fisher-Wright. I love Blanche's drawings. They're gorgeous, right? Mm -hmm. They're very like, I feel like the way that children's picture books would be in the 1800s. Back to you, pal. So the next one I have on my list, these are all out of order. You're doing these in such like a beautiful autobiography order. I left us in college. Now we are jumping back in time to eighth grade. Oh, I wish I could have met eighth grade Olivia. She is a real nerd. And this is evidenced by the fact that Jane Eyre was my favorite book in eighth grade. And I don't know that I understood 80% of it, mm-hmm. but it was my favorite book because of the vibes. I was not a Jane Austen girly. I know you were. You were a Jane Austen mm-hmm. But not person. until I got to college. Okay, so Jane Austen wasn't... There. There are. There's the Jane Austen Hardcore girl. people. Yeah. yeah, and you can kind of tell her... You can tell when you see her. She has... 
the Pemberley sweatshirt on. She's drinking a cup of tea and she's mm -hmm. sitting back and observing society and making clever remarks she's, in her head. She's about texting it. her friends about a bad marriage yeah. proposal. <laughs> yeah, she is. <laughs> and she's making trenchant little observations about society today mm -hmm. and sort of laughing sardonically at everyone else. That wasn't me. I was the emo version of that which of course is charlotte mm -hmm. bronte jane Eyre. reading it now i think it would depress me to no end but in eighth grade it appealed I, deeply. I actually was just thinking recently how i wanted to actually reread it let's do because it because i think it would i think it would hold up for let's me let's do it let's do it we'll do jane Eyre maybe in 2024 that's going to be one of our resolutions Perfect. so i read it loved it and then i read villette in college and i was like actually this is my favorite book. And this is what I think were the appeal factors for me, is that Elizabeth Bennett, not that we need to compare these two women authors, but mm -hmm. uh, in my head I think it, it helps a little bit to clarify why this was more appealing to me than the more mainstream sort of Jane Austen. Mm -hmm. As Elizabeth Bennett was popular and pretty and desirable and she had this best friend and she had this huge big family and she mm -hmm. she had it I mean she had her struggles but for the most part she was in a pretty good place yeah Jane Eyre was completely alone she mm -hmm. was described as not being very pretty and she just had to make her way through her life completely on her own merit and just be kind of savvy and she was deeply lonely throughout mm -hmm. a lot of the book. Mm -hmm. And I think as an adolescent, that was something that I didn't really see written about. I didn't see like loneliness in young people mm -hmm. described very much in books. And it was definitely my, ex I think most people, young people do have periods of loneliness. Sure. Um, probably eighth grade was a big one for me and in college too. I went through phases of deep loneliness and to see that sort of written in this really beautiful way and mm -hmm. illustrated in this sort of like, you know, the very yeah. gothic sort of Charlotte Bronte way. I loved it. And I love, I still love lonely women books nowadays. Mm -hmm. I love, that's why I love that. Like that Patty Smith book, mm -hmm. like a woman sort of making her way through her day without a whole lot of human interaction, mostly just entertained by her own thoughts. Do you have a moment in Jane Eyre? That was the moment. When you think about that book, what is the, the th one thing you think about without giving away like a huge plot thing for our friends who may not have read it? And I will tell you what mine is. Whenever I think of Jane Eyre, I think about the tree yeah, and, and yeah. the storm. Yeah. That's all I'm going to say. Okay. That book is just like got the gothic vibes and it's just, it is. which it's people exciting. I think think it's going to be this like old school romance, but it's got this like dark undercurrent and these gothic tones that were kind of popular in the 1800s. And it's, I didn't read Jane Eyre until I was, I think a freshman in college for an English, English class. And it blew my mind. I was mm. like, holy crap, when was this written? Oh my God, this is like over a hundred years old. It's phenomenal. It's and really it good. still stands up. Okay, we got to reread that. Okay, what's your moment from Jane Eyre? Um, I liked, I liked that she went for a walk at the beginning. <laughs> it's mostly vibes. Mm -hmm. Like she, I remember there were a lot of there were a lot of like secluded from a situation and observing it from sort of an outside perspective. Mm -hmm. So at the very beginning, when she hides behind the curtains, mm -hmm. do you remember that? And she's mm -mm. like. There's a little nook in her house. So she has a very abusive sort of aunt, I think, that raises yeah. her. And so she's hiding from her behind these, like, I big, do remember that. She can see through, like, the little crack in the curtains. And then she goes for this sort of moody, moorsy walk 
outside, dark and gray. Mm-hmm. And then um, the sort of her observing these parties at this wealthy house where she works. So mm-hmm. she's not really a part of them, but she's like sort of observing them and being a part of it. I remember that too. The sort of outsider feeling. Mm-hmm. I didn't have this depressing of a childhood. No, but everybody, especially as a teen, has loneliness. I think you hit the nail on the head. Like you're all going, all teenagers are going through the same stuff, but you still feel so isolated in your own awkwardness, right? For me, I started reading Sylvia Plath. Oh yeah. Poetry and Emily Dickinson when I was a teenager, mostly because my aunt gave me the books and she's like, you're moody. You should read these. (laughs) And it's like, okay, I I wouldn't give Sylvia Plath to a kid necessarily. Emily Dickinson, yes. I was like, oh, yeah, this speaks to my soul. But I was like, Sylvia Plath poems are a little dark. They are very dark. (laughs) Just a little. Yeah. (laughs) I memorized one once. And I, I, just because I thought her language was beautiful. And then once Mm -hmm. I memorized it and I read it out loud to myself, I was like, hmm. That doesn't seem right. Oh my gosh, Ugh. that's a great book. I'm super jealous. Like it was so hard to pick these because there's so many books, yeah. and maybe we can list a couple runners up at the end. There's so many books that oh, yeah. that would be on my list for sure, as as well as um, God, so many books. This is such a great prompt, Amanda. I'm so glad you thought of mm-hmm. this. I can't wait to hear what your next one is. Okay, so my next one is, and this is the copy I read when I was a kid. Oh. <sighs> We'll do that one too in 2020. We really should be prepared for your heart to be broken. Um, my next one I read when I was eight. I guess I am going in chronological order of this my life. The logical way to do it. Yeah. And this was so hard because truly the Little House on the Prairie books were like my favorites because I was very much a tomboy. And so that those books were so important to me. I felt like I saw myself in the characters and everything, and we lived in the country. And so I used to pretend that we were, you know, the 1800s and things of that nature. But that is not the book I'm talking about next. I am talking about Where the Red Fern Grows by Wilson Rawls. And this is a story about um, this boy lives in the country. I can't remember what state. I want to say it's like somewhere deep south, like Arkansas maybe. And he saves up his money and he buys two coon dogs. So those would be dogs that you use for coon hunting, raccoon hunting. And uh, he gets a a pair of dogs. It's a brother and a sister dog. And he names them Old Dan and Little Ann. And Old Dan is the brawny dog and Little Ann is kind of the brains of the operation. And so the kid in the story is, if I remember correctly, he's like a tween. And his dad's like, yeah, you can save up and pay for these dogs, but you are responsible for them. So he, um, with a little bit of his dad's help, he figures out how to train them to be um, dogs that track raccoons because they used to sell the skins back in the day as income. And so I want to say this takes place like, God, I, I haven't read this. Seriously, I haven't reread this because I was so scared it wasn't going to hold up. That's how much this book meant to me when I was eight. I want to say it takes place probably in like the 30s. Mm. So it was that idea of like an old timey time period that I didn't experience. The affection that this kid had for his dogs. Like I always loved animals as a kid. But going back to the idea of loneliness, like he has a, he's obviously part of a family. He has siblings and everything. But you get the sense that he 
is always kind of doing doing his own thing and kind of like an outlier in his family. At least the way I that's the way I read this as a kid, and and being the youngest and being kind of the one that got left right. out of stuff, yeah. I really glommed on to him and this relationship he then created for himself with his animals. And this book is obviously about has elements of him hunting, but it's about the relationship he develops with his dogs. There are some neighbor kids that are problematic in the story that, without spoiling anything, um, their relationship comes to a pretty dramatic head later in the book. Mm. And I think the reason that this book is so important to me and like my human development was this was one of the first books I read. I mean, again, I was eight years old that featured death mm. in a very real way. And this I read before I read... Um, Bridge to Terabithia, which again has elements of that. Yeah. So this was like precursor to that for me. And it just had some, it was realistic fiction. And I felt, it felt very mature for me as an eight-year-old to oh, be reading sure. this. Yeah. And it kind of felt like, you know, I was just reading Berenstain Bear books the year before. And I was reading this book. And I felt, I remember feeling like more mature when I read this book. Totally. It was almost like I passed some personal milestone by yeah. reading this book and I think that's why it's still so important to me but also just just the situations he gets put in in this one thing that happens later in the book that I just remember being like oh my god and and really sitting and thinking about life and what death means and like the permanence of certain things in your life and age it was very is actually deep. huge it yeah. is a big age there's something that happens there's something then. that clicks you know they used to say during um the reformation the age of reason was seven in the oh. Christian in the Christian faith the expectation was by the time you were 7 you were kind of uh, spiritually moving towards adulthood already mm. and for me it's like yeah i wasn't feeling it at 7 but 8 and 9 something clicked for me in sure. in those two years so there's a really fun famous story about this that i'll tell you in a different episode actually i'll save it for when we cover this about okay. how this book came into being cuz it almost didn't it's so. a famously a sad book and i think his I remember loving sad books when I was a kid. I didn't like scary, but I yeah. liked a good cry, like a well, good sad. And I think we've talked about that in the podcast. Sometimes parents or adults feel like, you know, I don't want to pick something that's going to be sad or, oh, I don't want the kid, I don't want my kid feeling like sad or depressed about something. But it's like, those are very healthy emotions to experience. Totally. And if you let kids do it in a safe, controlled environment, like with a book, it gives you an opportunity to have a deeper conversation and make those emotions healthy and yep. real and just part of human life. Like it doesn't have to be a thing. There's nothing wrong with people reading a sad book every once in a while or something right. that's kind of depressing. It kind of helps you focus on all the good things in life. I think sometimes too. So I mean, what is, would little women be without the sad part? Oh my God. You I'm know what? Put it in the freezer. Yeah. Did you watch what friends? Would, no. <laughs> Oh, I, I think there's I the episode see that where episode. Rachel makes Joey read right. Little Women, and, and he, he makes Joe's her read The Shining. <laughs> and when he gets scared when he reads The Shining, he tells Rachel he puts it in the freezer. <laughs> so when he's reading Little Women, he gets to the part with Beth, and he's oh, like, yeah. "Beth is sick." And Rachel goes, "Do you want to put it in the freezer, honey? It's okay." <laughs> so I always think about that when a book's making me sad. I always say to my husband, "I'm going to put this in the freezer for now." Yeah, yeah. Sometimes you need a little break. Yeah, but it cool it does it like. It enriches the story when you have that sad part. Like the, mm -hmm. you need that part for the rest of it to kind of matter. Like the bridge to Terabithia sad mm. part. Oh that's, my god! I remember rereading that. But those and, are like, oops, 
those are the ways you're offering a good opportunity for kids to experience those things without actually having to experience them in real life yet. And so they're more emotionally prepared when someone in their life actually does pass away or when something really drastic and sad happens to your family, you've given them an opportunity to like, almost like prepare, right? Speaking of, this leads nicely into my last pick. Which, so we've, we've done college, mm-hmm. undergrad, we've done eighth grade, <gasps> teenager. Oh, is this going to be baby Olivia? No, this is oh. going to be, I so, I've talked so much about baby stuff that this is actually going to be twenties, early to mid twenties. Okay. Um, very popular writer now, but at the time he wasn't that popular. He was just releasing books and a librarian at the Rochester Hills Public mm-hmm. Library, Cricket, a, mm-hmm. still a lovely librarian. She's not there anymore, but she was huge for me. She was a teen librarian, which is what I desperately wanted to be. Did she, you say her name was Cricket? Cricket. I love it. Yep, that's her name. And she was, She gave me, she was like, you know, I said, I want to read teen books. I want to be a teen librarian someday. Mm-hmm. Do you have an author that you would recommend to me? And she said, yeah, there's this author. He's been writing some books. I think you'll like him. His name's John Green. I was about to say John Green. Yeah. And so she gave me An Abundance of Catherines, which I flew through. And then I read, I was like, wow, he does know how to write a teen uh-huh. book. This guy's going places. So uh-huh. then I read Looking for Alaska, Yep. which classic now. Mm-hmm. And then I read Paper Towns and they were huge for me. It was such a big deal to me to read someone who could write young people yeah. in this really smart way, bring in, he had a style, like a mm-hmm. very unique, specific voice that I really liked. Um, he brought in these smart, fun, young people. It drives me crazy when people say teens don't talk like that because mm-hmm. I worked with teens for a very long time. Some of them do. They do. They're very smart. They're they're very culturally literate. Yeah. John Green was huge for me. I loved how he weaved in science and pop culture. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, he came out with The Fault in Our Stars. Such that a good was example. like the Hollywood. Yeah, that's when he exploded. Yep. Everybody was obsessed. Um, he And that is a very sad book mm-hmm. where you know it's going to be sad from the outset. You mm-hmm. know it's a, a book about kids with cancer. But man, but is he it makes good. him. He doesn't make it like a Hallmark movie, people, or like Literally. a Lifetime, not Hallmark, Lifetime. Yeah, where it's like, whoops, soppy, like whatever. He gives them so much dignity, yes. and he makes them funny and flawed and terrified. And I read The Fault in Our Stars in one setting. Yep, sitting one sitting in my old bedroom in this house I lived in. And um, I just remember ugly crying at the end of that so book. So good. hard, just like racked yep. with sobs and just feeling so good afterwards. Like I loved it so much. It's catharsis. It's so good. And But which is your favorite by John Green? Well, is it The Vault in Our Stars? I would say my favorite for a long time was Paper Towns. I loved the mystery element of it. Mm-hmm. I loved all of the pop culture elements that yeah. went into it, but I also really, I I picked two. I picked Looking for Alaska. I was going to say you're a Looking for Alaska person. Yeah. I think when I you said John Green, Alaska. I was like, she's going to talk about Looking for Alaska. I did love Looking for Alaska, and That's, I thought the show was really good, too. And I didn't the see the show. Oh, I need to good. go back and reread these, because A Fault in Our Stars, I remember the best, mostly because I reread it when the movie came out, and then I went and saw the movie, but I read all of his books, but I don't remember them like, I remember looking for Alaska very yeah. clearly. I loved all of them. They're all good. That's, They're all I guess really, that's really what good. my answer is that I like yeah. them all. I, 
I really do. And I recommended them to kids all of the time when I was a teen librarian because it really just, they're a realistic fiction that they weren't preachy. They still provided these appeal factors, the romance and the fun Mm -hmm. and the warmth and the funniness. Mm -hmm. But then they also did obviously didn't shy away from real issues. too. I also feel like John Green was really um, huge in making the kind of Making it kind of cool to be nerdy. Yo, definitely. In a way that when we were kids, it was like super not cool. Like, I feel like he was right at the dawn of nerdiness being cool. And I can't remember, there used to be some catchphrase when he started to get really big or a hashtag that big John Green fans would use. And I can't remember what it was. Don't forget to be awesome. Don't forget to be, don't forget to be awesome. Yeah. So, yeah. He's good people. Yeah, warm nerdiness. And he's a Midwesterner. He's from, what, Indiana, right? Yeah, he's in Indianapolis. You're right. Well, that's at least where he lives now. I don't know if he grew up there. I don't remember. Yeah, me neither. Florida, maybe? It doesn't matter. Anyway, he's a Midwesterner now. Yeah, no. He's ours now. Yeah. Yeah, so that that was it for me. (sighs) So since we're dealing with teen fiction, realistic fiction, I feel like, right? So this is a book. That I feel like every library I've worked at, not that's not true. A lot of libraries I've worked at have this book both in the teen department as well as their um, kids department geared towards tweens, upper, the fourth through sixth graders. Probably more towards the sixth graders, quite honestly. It is The Outsiders by S.E. Hinton. Tell and me about your experience with this. I'm so curious. Okay, first let me show you my dirty, ragged old cover. Wow. I have the cover from that came out after the movie came out what the movie came out in 84 i think maybe isn't that fun flip it over there's pictures from the movie oh yeah so my copy is the post movie version but the original book came out in did you underline your favorite characters in the movie i think my sister did that this was her copy first <laughs> but i think my mom also bought it at like a used bookstore because it's pretty ragged and yes. we, we did not do that to that book was your May name Bennett? Mm-hmm. Like Elizabeth. One of my favorite characters. That's actually my sister's handwriting. Oh, really? Yeah, this was her book, and I stole it from her and never gave it back. If she listens to the podcast, she might ask for her book back, and I will fight her for it. Uh, right. So this book was published for the first time in 1967. Essie Hinton was a woman. She actually published under Essie, to the initials SE to hide that it was a woman because she thought, or her publisher thought, I can't really remember which, thought it would do better if people thought it was a male author writing about uh, men in the 50s. Tough guys. Tough guys. So um, interestingly enough, Essie Hinton actually wrote this book when she was a teenager. I believe she wrote it when she was 16 going on 17, and it was published when she was 17 going on 18. Whoa. She actually is in the movie, too. She plays a nurse in the background oh. when they're in the hospital visiting Johnny. I like when they Little. do that. I do, too. So The Outsiders is um, takes place in the 50s, and it uh, follows um, this group of guys that are really tight-knit group of friends on the wrong side of the track. So the working-class guys that um, don't have a lot of money, and um, and they uh, kind of live in their own world, but they interact, unfortunately, occasionally with the Soches. The Soch. A Soch is a person that has, uh, they live on the right side of the tracks. They've got money. They have opportunities. So, of course, there's a clash. There's this 
clash between um, different socioeconomic groups, right, at the most basic level in this book. And um, it kind of comes to a head. There's this huge, uh, there's a thing that happens at the beginning um, that results in a death. And then um, it leads to a couple of our characters having to run away to avoid the police. And the great thing about this book, and the reason I think it's so popular, is it goes over a lot of, like, like teen emotions, like real things like being, a, being you know, afraid that you're never going to get out of your circumstance, you know, having feelings for someone else and being afraid that it's not going to go anywhere. But it's also these great male friendships, mm. right? And for me, reading this book, it this when I, I read this when I was way too young. They usually have you read this, I think, in eighth grade. Mm-hmm. I went in my sister's room when she was gone, babysitting for a couple of days, and I picked up her copy, and I was 11, so I think I was in summer after fifth grade I read this book, so a little bit too young, but it felt like the book that opened a door for me into feeling more mature and adult, right, when you're on the cusp of teen, becoming a teenager and wanting things that are maybe a little bit sexier than kids' chapter books. For sure. And I love this movie. It was so popular. Um, Francis Ford Coppola actually directed the movie version that came out. So the book came out in 67. I think the movie was made in 83. And we're talking a lot of these famous actors before they were super big. Um, You will recognize some of these names. Tom Cruise, Emilio Estevez, Rob Lowe, Diane Lane, Patrick Swayze, C. Thomas Howell, Matt Dillon, and Ralph Macchio, who was a karate kid. All these famous guys um, made this fantastic, fantastic cast of friends that are taking care of one of one with taking care of one another and also living out this kind of rough and tumble existence. It is such a fantastic book. This book blew me away so hard that I went to the library um, and got every single S.E. Hinton book that they had. And then I had my mom take me to the used bookstore and I started buying copies of all of them. So I, I read all of her other books. This was really her opus. Yeah, that's her famous Her one. first book in her opus, but it is fantastic, phenomenal. If you're an adult and you somehow miss being able to read this book when it was big, go pick it up. It's 156 pages. It's pretty much like an almost like a novella size. You will sit down and you will read this in an afternoon. It's super short. It's so good, though. It draws you in, and it's got one of my favorite opening lines of all time. It starts with, When I stepped out into the bright sunlight from the darkness of the movie house, I had only two things on my mind, Paul Newman and a ride home. Nice. I love that. How I think about that line. How does a 16, 17-year-old person write that? I'm going to sit that. <sighs> gifted i wonder if she's still alive i think she is someone did a anniversary a 50th anniversary interview with her a couple god that would have been yeah 17 would that have been 2017 would have been 50 years i think she's 75 wow i see hinton if you're listening will you please come on our podcast i just think you're the bee's knees (laughs) the first question on google is was se hinton a greaser or a (laughs) soch she says she was neither she personally knew teens from both groups. Yeah. That's amazing. She's a floater. Okay. That's I loved it. this so much. This was a fun, difficult, difficult challenge to just pick three. This is, I'm like seeing little threads of like mm-hmm. reasons why these books are important to us. Either they reflected something 
about what we were going through at the time. Mm-hmm. They opened our minds like mm-hmm. roots. Mm-hmm. Um, to Kill a Mockingbird was a big one. For That's me a big for one that. for me. Mm-hmm. And then um, also like um, situations outside of the book itself. Like if a teacher teaches it really well yeah. or an author comes to visit. Yeah. Or, it just really sort of drives home <gasps> the importance to me of like having those author visits or those classes. Yes. Or those book Rita Dove came to a small liberal arts college called Simon's Rock, which is in Massachusetts. And I was working part-time at their library and I went in and I watched her poetry reading. Rita Dove like blows my mind still. Yeah. If you want some, some poetry with heart. I'm telling you, read a dove. There's so many good books. Olivia, tell me about what you're reading right now, though. So what I just finished was a book called The Rachel Incident by Caroline O'Donohue. Ooh. It was published this year. It, okay. I didn't read it in time for our best books of the year, so that's why I'm glad I have the opportunity to talk oh, about good. it now and sneak it in here. Good. So it's about an Irish college student named Rachel. Okay. She is... Living during the late uh, 2000s, so like the late aughts. Okay. In Ireland, they call them the noughts or the noughties. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Um, so she works in a bookshop um, and meets this lovely man, James, who mm-hmm. is sort of sparkling and effervescent, and they have this immediate sort of intense friendship. She discovers that James is gay, which he tries to hide because at the time, you know, it doesn't seem like that long ago, but a lot has happened in the mm-hmm. last 20 years mm-hmm. and so he's not super comfortable being out yet so they just but she knows you know they and mm-hmm. they become these like intense friends and Ireland at that time was going through a recession the same as we were mm-hmm. or worse uh, yeah. even but you know that that sort of situation of you're new you just graduated high school. You're new to adulthood. Mm-hmm. You're ready to start your life, and the economy is Tanks. tanked, and there's no jobs. And I, I went through that too. It's sort of weird to That's think about. That's when I that. graduated with my master's. Yep, me too. <laughs> I was gradu- graduating undergrad, and I was like, great. So I guess I'll go back to school. And I remember great. that feeling of like you're ready to, you know, spread yeah. your wings. Yeah, you're ready and, to launch, and you can't. And you can't. Yeah. And so she talks about that so well. It's a little weird to think of that as historical fiction because oh I was. God adult then and it's like that's sort of rude but um so anyway James and Rachel they they are sort of not sure what they're going to do with their life because of this so they get a house together in Ireland this sort of early 20s mm-hmm. sort of stereotypical falling apart kind of house yeah and um they have this sort of like their wild 20s together mm-hmm. and there's drama and there's scandalous relationships and making bad choices which you know I love in books um and but all throughout I think what makes this sort of an even more rich story than just like a normal 20 something story is this cultural context of Ireland at this particular time Mm -hmm. and then Caroline O'Donoghue the author she has a podcast called Sentimental Garbage which (sighs) I've been listening to a long time and I stole the concept, or I was inspired by okay. that <laughs> podcast, or our podcast. Get they, out. Their their podcast, they revisit things that have been maligned mm-hmm. um, by critics, usually things that women love or that okay. are made for women. Sure. Um, if you want to just get started and get a sense of what the podcast is about, her uh, episodes with Dolly Alderton, who wrote Ghosts, which was another one of my favorites mm-hmm. from the last few years. 
they did a series on Sex in the City, and they okay. do these really smart, incisive sort of cultural explorations. Funny you say that. I'm rewatching it right now. It's going to be perfect. For I you. am giving Carrie all the advice I couldn't give her when I watched that show almost 20 years ago. It's one of those that changes as you age. I, like, it it oh. really does. It was much more fun when I was in my 20s watching that, yeah. my mid-20s. And now um, some of the stuff that they do just makes me furious. She's so mean to Aiden. That's all I'm going to say. I hate Aiden. I would be mean to him too. Oh my gosh. I know. I, I love think, Aiden. Ugh. Big is a dirt bag. I'll tell you, I thought Big was like super like sexy and suave when I was in my early 20s or mid-20s. I'm like, now he's like, I'm like, he's a skeezy dirt bag. It, to me, I, it's like Gilmore Girls where I don't care for any of the men on the show. But see, the Max Medina is the Aiden. The good guys oh, are the ones that you like, Max and they're the Medina. ones that I love hate the most loved max max had it coming from the get-go though he was too puppy dog like so is aiden and he's so annoying when she her computer breaks i would just it's <laughs> a lot of emotions we're on, we're on the separate side of the spectrum we would here never fight aiden. over a dude that would be that's no that's, it's true completely different taste oh no judgment um <laughs> Okay, so I am rounding out the year with a recommendation from Olivia. I am listening to Making It So, a memoir by Patrick Stewart. I am not a Trekkie by Mm -hmm. any stretch of the imagination, but I've always appreciated Patrick Stewart's breadth of acting. Like he's done, you know, he's done Star Trek. He's done um, Marvel movies. He's done Shakespeare. He's kind of, he's just like one of those guys that's done it all and still seems humble. And when you read or listen to his book, you see that he comes from some very humble beginnings. Um, He grew up in an extremely poor working class area of Northern um, England And um, I am actually just at the part where he's talking about his experience going to the movies as a kid. And it's just fun. It's fun to kind of see what his basis, um, what his his kind of important things were as as a child and things that it sounds like made him into the actor that he is and the person that we know. And interestingly, I always thought he was Scottish because the last name Stuart. Oh, yeah. But he grew up in Northern Ireland, excuse me, Northern England. Mm -hmm. And he does mention that. His family didn't talk much about ancestry, but he believes like his family must have come from Scotland based on his surname of Stuart. 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 But anyway, he's got a lovely voice. So if you want a fun audiobook to listen to, I recommend Making It So, a memoir by Patrick Stewart. Thanks, you guys. Bye, friends. Think about what your three books would be, too, would you? And email them to the podcast. Yeah, email them. I find that very enlightening to think about that. What a. Oh. Oh, We're done. Bye. 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 Thank you for listening to The Books We Loved, a podcast through the Troy Public Library. You can find more information about the books and library services we mentioned in the show on our website at troypl.org slash podcast. If you would like to suggest a topic for future discussion, please email us at podcast at troypl.org. Thank you for listening and happy reading.